Hey everybody, before we start the podcast, I have a special announcement. This episode is sponsored by the Jewish Women's Archive, whose podcast, Can We Talk?, tells unique stories of gender and Jewish culture. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for Can We Talk's episode about Joan Rivers coming this spring. Visit jwa.org to discover the histories of Jewish women who inspire us all to be agents of change. And now, on with our show. Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. I've been coming up here with my family since I was born. It is the best place to have your first nervous breakdown, <laughs> which automatically comes with spending months in a cabin with your family every year since you were born. My first everything happened in the Catskills. Everything. My mother first told me to keep my knees closed until there's a ring on my finger in the Catskills. Actually, she told me it was biologically impossible to have sex without a ring on your finger. <laughs> Guess what, Mom? It's not. <laughs> What you're listening to is, of course, a clip from the hit Amazon Prime show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Now, if you're a fan, you may have already binged the third season, which dropped just a couple of weeks before we published this episode. Part of what gives the show its spark and dramatic tension is that Miriam Maisel, or Midge, as she's known, flouts the conventional roles assigned to young Jewish women of the 1950s. She's separated from her husband and single at a time when young women were supposed to be married. Instead of staying at home to care for her two young kids, Midge is out every night telling raunchy jokes in smoke-filled nightclubs. And in the nearly all-male world of comedy of the era, she's not only a woman, but an incredibly attractive woman, battling against the stereotype that beautiful women can't get laughs. In other words, Midge Maisel is depicted as a trailblazer. But of course, Midge is a fictional character. So maybe, like me, you've wondered about the real-life female comics of the 1950s that inspired the character. Now, Joan Rivers comes to mind, of course. And the creator of the show, Amy Sherman Palladino, is on record as being a big Joan Rivers fan. But Sherman Palladino and the actor who plays Midge, Rachel Brosnahan, had other influences too. In fact, Brosnahan honed her comic patter by studying clips of one of the true female pioneers of stand-up comedy, Jean Carroll. I went to this place and I, I walked in. Well, I really didn't walk in. There was a hook helping me. So I figured... Have you ever tried, you know, only looking at some of those places? You're lucky to come out alive. So I figured as long as I was there, I'd make conversation. I said to the sales girl, what's the size of that dress in the window? She says, it'll fit you. I said, well, I, I want to know what size it is. She said, it's your size. Take it. It was made for you. I didn't even know I was going to be in that neighborhood. She made a dress for me. If you've never heard of Jean Carroll before, you're definitely not alone. Before beginning research for this episode, I never heard of her either. And yet, in her heyday during the 1950s and early 60s, Carol was a pretty big deal. She was a headliner at many of the best theaters and nightclubs. She appeared almost 30 times on The Ed Sullivan Show. And for a short time, she even starred in her own TV sitcom. Today, though, Carol has pretty much disappeared from public memory and from the annals of comedy. Which is strange, since she was such an important stand-up innovator and really paved the way for Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller and so many other female comics who came after them. It's also a shame. 
Because Carol's story provides a fascinating window onto mid-20th century Jewish-American life, the lives and roles of Jewish women at the time, and the evolution of stand-up comedy as a distinctly Jewish contribution to American culture. and jelly lend me your Though you think you've been petted, don't be silly, forget it. Jean Carroll was not the first Jewish female comic artist. During the heyday of vaudeville and the early days of film and radio, many of the most popular female comedy performers were Jews. Molly Pekan was a star of Yiddish theater and film, and during the 1930s she starred in the musical comedy radio show The Molly Pekan Program. Fanny Bryce, originally Fania Borach, was an acclaimed singer and theater and film actress who created and starred in a top-rated radio comedy series called The Baby Snooks Show. She was portrayed by Barbara Streisand in the 1968 movie Funny Girl. And then, of course, there was Sophie Tucker, born Sonia Kalish. Known as the last of the Red Hot Mamas, Tucker was one of the most popular performers during the first half of the 20th century. Her performance of the tune, I Don't Want to Get Thin, is classic Tucker. Almost every day, I hear some kind friends say, Sophie dear, I think you're much too stout. Right away they suggest the diet they think best. They make me sick, I wish they'd cut it out. I don't want to get thin. I don't want to get thin. Why should I? When I'm all right as I am. Tucker and Bryce were known not only for their singing and acting, but also for how they looked and carried themselves. Tucker was a large woman with a broad face and a brash, bold manner. Bryce had a stereotypically large Jewish nose and often played the clown. Neither was considered attractive according to conventional standards of beauty at the time. And for the sake of comedy, that served them pretty well. Comedy? is the most unfeminine profession. This is comedian Judy Gold. Here I am, I have an opinion, and I am going to control this entire room. And, you know, uh, uh, being opinionated at that time, being a lady meant you didn't have an opinion. You had your husband's opinion, or you kept your opinion to yourself. You dressed a certain way. You had a certain place. Now you and, and you know in society and in social situations and it, even in your home. But you know you look at Fanny Bryce and Sophie Tucker. That you know they're they're outspoken. They're at, sort of outrageous in in a way. In some ways, Jean Carroll followed in the footsteps of Bryce Tucker and other lesser known Jewish female comic performers. For one thing, her real name wasn't Jean Carroll. It was the more Jewish-sounding Celine Zeigman, and she was actually known as Sadie, an even more obviously Jewish name. And like most aspiring female performers, Carol got her start as a dancer and singer on vaudeville and the Variety Theater circuit. In 1922, Variety magazine noted her lively, flirtatious performance in a musical review called Midnight Rounders, describing her as a pretty blonde dancing soubrette who took the lead on numbers including a rattling good time and a bushel of kisses. In 1934, Carol formed a comedy duo with Buddy Howe, a dancer she'd met on the vaudeville circuit. According to Grace Kessler Overbeck, a postdoctoral fellow at Duke University's Center for Jewish Studies, whose dissertation on Jean Carroll is central to this episode, the partnership with Howe, whom Carroll married in 1936, gave her the opportunity to showcase her comic chops. When she started working with Buddy Howe, she got to write the routines. She got to give herself the punchlines. She really got to be in control. 
And so all of a sudden, she got to be more recognized. There was still, it was still the same general form. There was still dancing and singing in a kind of, uh, it wasn't what we would think of as stand-up comedy by any means, but she was getting to be a comedian and being recognized as such. But she was still following the tried-and-true format of the male-female comedy team, where the guy typically played the straight man and the woman played his ditzy comic foil. The legendary George Burns and his wife Gracie Allen perfected the form. Did you ever know that my Uncle Otis ran for city councilman of San Francisco? Oh. Oh, and what a campaign he put on. Kissed all the babies, huh? Oh, no, why should he? In San Francisco, very few babies are old enough to vote. Yeah, well, the climate there keeps the babies young. As you'll hear in the following clip of Howe and Carol in 1937, their act sounds pretty similar, with Howe playing the straight man and Carol channeling Alan's silly, illogical persona. Look, look, look at this. Isn't that lovely? What is that? Oh, it's just a little picture I drew. A picture? Yes, I draw occasionally, you know. You do? Uh Let me see it. Yeah. What is that? It's a picture of my home. Oh, boy, that's a terrible picture. I know, I have a terrible home. You ought to know. It was only after World War II, when Carol went solo and started doing stand-up comedy, that she really stepped off the expected path for female performers and began to do something truly innovative. Now, it's important to understand that in the late 1940s and early 50s, stand-up comedy in its modern form was pretty much brand new. The idea of a performer standing alone on the stage telling jokes seemed strange. The 40s was unusual because it was a time when stand-up was sort of just finding its feet. Um, It's really entertaining to read old reviews of stand-up, particularly in the 40s, because critics don't quite know what to call it. They're sort of baffled. The term that they often use is a comic monologist. Nearly all of the comic monologists were men, and they were mostly Jews. Some, like Lenny Bruce, made their Jewishness an explicit part of their act. I'll show you how it works. Eddie Cantor's Goyish. Gene Ammons is Jewish. Ray Charles is very Jewish. Al Jolson, Goyish. The Army is Goyish. The Navy is Goyish. The Marine Corps is Goyish. The Air Force is Jewish. Other stand-ups may not have relied as much on Jewish material, but their rapid patter and quick-witted wordplay was understood as a distinctly Jewish type of humor. So happy to be here tonight, even at this salary. (laughs) Two gamblers coming out of church. One says, look, it's hallelujah, not hialeah. (laughs) A drunk walks up to a parking meter, puts a dime in, the arrow goes to 60. He says, yeah, I lost 100 pounds. That's Henny Youngman, the legendary king of the one-liners. Now, to a certain extent, Jean Carroll's stand-up act was kind of similar. She delivered her material in a quick, breezy tone, packing in as many jokes as possible. How do you like my tan? I just got back from Florida. Oh, I had a wonderful time. You know, I used to wonder why doctors tell you to go to Florida for rheumatism. Well, I found out you get it there. But I really loved it. You should see the sales they have. Everything is on sale. I bought me a beautiful outfit for hunting. This is it. But, you know, I... In Judy Gold's view, Carol was basically doing stand-up like a man would do it. She was like a straight joke teller. She was 
doing the job, not as a woman, but just as a comedian. She performed like all the great male comics of the time. She went out on the stage and delivered her well-crafted jokes. And if I'm not mistaken, I think one of the guys actually stole a joke from her. But Carol was a woman, of course, which presented all sorts of challenges. As a woman, doing stand-up comedy meant flouting conventional ideas about the place of women in 1950s society. Yeah, I think it's just this issue of the idea that women should be nurturers and caretakers and supporters rather than performers. She's doing something that puts herself into a spotlight, which is in a way, a very subversive thing to do for a woman to voluntarily take up space and insist upon your voice being heard and insist upon other people listening and laughing and giving you their time and attention. Plus, a staple of stand-up comedy of the era was talking about Jewish women as dim-witted, emasculating, and generally a giant pain in the neck, a characterization that harkened back to the ghetto girl stereotype of the 1910s and 20s. And the stereotypes that begin to emerge are of Jewish women as excessive. This is Riv Ellen Prell, Professor Emerita of American Studies at the University of Minnesota. As greedy as uh, interested in forcing men to take care of them and taking a man's money away from him, either in this new American ritual of dating or in marriage as well, so that Jewish women become, in the eyes of Jewish men, as figures who will complicate their lives, who will force them to work harder than they want to, who will take everything from them. After World War II, the figure of the Jewish mother came in for similar treatment. The image is always the same. She is the suffocating, emasculating, overwhelming, exhausting figure in the life of the son and his father. So she is emasculating to her husband. She takes all the power, but the result is her love for her son is too intense and he cannot deal with the expectations and all that is focused on her. In The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Midge's mother-in-law, the mother of her estranged husband, Joel, represents the type with her loud and vulgar manner, her fixation on money, and the way she babies her grown son. Rise and shine, Jolie. It's 7 o'clock in the a.m. Good morning, Ma. Look at that. Another gorgeous, sunshiny day. You should ride your bike. I don't ride bikes anymore, Ma. Wear a hat. You'll get a sunstroke. I'm not riding a bike, Ma. Oh, it's been so nice having my boy chick home. Jewish comics seized on the stereotype and made Jewish Jewish mother jokes a staple of their routines. Even Carol, a Jewish wife and mother herself, made fun of Jewish mothers. All that time, my husband and I were only separated once. That was during the Korean War, when I was in the army. <laughs> but I don't want you to misunderstand. It isn't that he didn't want to do his bit for his country. He did. He tried to enlist, but they couldn't take him, not the way he was. No, no. He had a, a thing on his arm. He had a big thing right here on his arm and that they couldn't get it off. It was his mother. <laughs> the point is that when Carol began doing stand-up, she was entering a world that was distinctly unkind to women. 
And what's really amazing, even subversive, especially for the time, was how Carol dealt with the reality of being one of the very few women in a masculine domain. Watching clips of Carol on YouTube, a few things really stand out. First, she's really beautiful. She's elegant. She's quite attractive. She falls within the norm of how women are supposed to look. Isn't in that sort of line of women comics and Jewish women comics as well. Prowla is talking about Fanny Bryce and Sophie Tucker, who, as I mentioned before, did not meet typical standards of beauty. As Overbeck notes in her research, Carol deliberately broke that mold, and she accentuated her beauty with fancy form-fitting dresses, a string of pearls, and sometimes elbow-length gloves. In a very clever way, she was playing with and against the age-old comedy adage that beautiful women can't be funny. I mean, if you really look at the outfits of women comics through the years, I mean, you could not look sexy. You couldn't look sexy because that would objectify your, yourself. It's a spoken word art form. You wanted people to you wanted people to listen to what you were saying. So if you're, you know, glamming up and looking like a sex pot, the guys are going to be not listen and the women are going to be jealous and it's only recently where we see the Amy Schumers and the Rachel Feinsteins and the Nikki Glazers and these people just getting up and being like, I am going to wear whatever I want. I'm going to look hot on stage. Carol was the first Jewish female comic to present herself as a woman who was beautiful, vivacious, and funny. But her path blazing was about more than just her appearance. Carol's act was carefully crafted to put her audience at ease and to upend their assumptions and expectations. For example, in this clip from 1955, Carol comes out on stage in a form-fitting low-cut dress and begins to sing, as the audience might expect from a pretty female performer. It's wonderful, it's wonderful for me to be but after the first few bars, she stops and says to the audience, Enough, 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 Hank. I don't want to sing. I want to talk about love. Love. It's a clever twist, confounding the audience's expectation that a beautiful woman performer must be a singer or dancer. Instead, she's a stand-up comic. And she's funny. What is love? Does anybody know? Well, that's a moot question, isn't it? So I ask moot. So, Moot, you see Moot? Moot, he's such a smart fella, and he's my first boyfriend. Oh, I was crazy about Moot. I went with Moot for, um, what did I go with him for? I don't remember now, but I, I really liked him. I liked him, but our romance was one of those triangles. You see, he and I were both in love with him. Well, anyhow, I said, Moot, how do you know when you're really in love? He said, Jeannie, you'll know because you'll feel so funny inside. You'll feel sick. And that's what happened when I met Jack. Jack asked me to marry him. And Jack, just looking at him, he was such a hunk of man, six foot two and a solid 80 pounds. Now, if you're not exactly doubling over with laughter, I get it. The jokes are a little silly, maybe a little tame for our modern sensibilities. But at the time, this was funny stuff. And what's really significant is that a woman on stage seemingly just being herself and speaking her mind was something entirely new. That was where Jean Carroll really was quite innovative and remarkable because she had this, this seeming lack of a boundary between Jean Carroll offstage and Jean Carroll onstage. She was doing something that 
women hadn't done before. She had male colleagues who were doing it, which is just pretending to speak from her particular viewpoint and tell a series of seemingly authentic stories and jokes in a very conversational, personal, intimate way. Carol's act didn't include a lot of material that was overtly Jewish. It wouldn't have fit her image as a refined, assimilated Jewish woman. But as Overbeck notes, she did talk in a sort of coded way about things that her audience would recognize as obviously Jewish. For example, she has a bit about the sort of decked-out, overbearing Jewish women who winter in Florida and brag about their kids. And you know something? Oh, the women, they were so nice. We used to sit around and tell lies. You know, they all, they all brag about their children. Oh, my son is a genius. He talks. He's only 30. And all the women have sons, doctors, lawyers. No one works. But I met, I met one nice old lady. Oh, she was so nice. She had so many operations. Carol also talked a lot about being a wife and mother, in direct counterpoint to how male comics complained about their nagging, grasping Jewish wives. Carol made a point of talking trash about her husband and daughter, who she referred to as that rotten kid. I have a little girl, a rotten kid, and you know, <laughs> as a matter of fact, when I see children in an audience, I get such a feeling. I love kids. I used to go to school with them, and you know. <laughs> Like when women complain about children, sometimes can be very testing, you know. But I'm telling you, like I heard one woman say, when her little boy was three months old, she could have eaten him up, and now she wishes she had. <laughs> you know that having a child is the greatest blessing in the world. Now I know because I have my little girl. My mother kept telling me what a wonderful thing it was to be a mother. Finally came the big day in my life I had my baby. Oh, I was so happy. I couldn't wait to send her to camp. <laughs> For the 1950s, this was radical stuff. Mothers were supposed to dote on their children and dedicate their lives to raising them. Carol had a daughter who she did, in fact, love and dote on. And she may have had a very proper, ladylike persona, but in her comedy, she pulled no punches in puncturing the idealized image of the loving mother. She is somebody who challenges the norms, who uses language differently, and who is willing to poke at the traditional ideas of what a mother or a wife is. In real life, Carol was happily married to her former comedy partner, Buddy Howe. But in her act, she portrayed her husband as a drunk idiot. But you know, really, I, I shouldn't make fun of him, should I? Because after all, he is my husband, and he's so sweet. No, no, truly. I mean, he has a lot of little things like his disposition. Most fellas, they have a tough day at the racetrack. They get nasty. But not my Jack. He's so sweet, nothing bothers him. He drinks. And of course... Well, he doesn't drink because he likes it. He drinks to steady his nerves. The other night, they got so steady, he couldn't move at all. As you can tell by the uproarious laughter, Carol is killing it. The audience loves her. By the early 1950s, Carol was headlining at many of the best theaters and nightclubs. In 1953, she even got a short-lived sitcom on ABC called The Gene Carroll Show. Throughout the 50s and into the early 60s, she toured extensively and performed regularly on The Ed Sullivan Show and other variety programs. But even though she was a star, Carol still had to deal with the pressures and sometimes the indignities of being a woman stand-up comic. When she performed on Ed Sullivan in 1964, for example, Sullivan clearly thought nothing of remarking on her appearance. It's so wonderful to have you back on the show again, and 
I want to congratulate you. You've taken off a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah. Your hair is different. Everything about you is different. You really think so? Uh-huh. Why do you hear the jokes? Carol takes the remark about her weight in stride, but it's hard to imagine Ed Sullivan telling a male comic he's lost weight and looking good, right? Carol talked about losing and gaining weight in her act, but even given the social attitudes of the time, that sort of thing had to bother her. Plus, by the mid-60s, younger and edgier female comics, such as Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, were gaining more attention. A woman doing stand-up and talking about life from a female perspective was no longer quite as new and attention-grabbing as it was when Carol started out. Her time in the spotlight was coming to an end. Jean Carroll retired from show business in 1965 at the age of 55 to spend more time with her family. She had a a daughter, Helen, who had a really difficult time, I think, being both Jean Carroll's very beloved daughter and also being people's stand-in for the, the, quote, rotten kid that Carroll would disparage time and time again on national television. So when you look at the the clippings that Jean Carroll chooses to save, disproportionately, they're ones that are about her relationship with Helen. Carroll's retirement may have had just as much to do with the fact that by the mid-60s, American cultural and social mores were rapidly changing. Carroll was a product of the 1930s and 40s, and it's likely that her brand of comedy was beginning to feel a little bit safe and dated compared to some of the younger and more risque female comics appearing on the scene. By the 1960s, you know, you have you have Phyllis Diller and you have Joan Rivers and, you know, the entertainment industry is a little bit fickle. And so there's a lot of excitement about these new sort of women comedy pioneers, um, sometimes even at the expense of, uh, of just like flat out erasing Jean Carroll. As I mentioned near the beginning of this episode, until pretty recently, Jean Carroll had more or less disappeared from the history of American comedy. Why she disappeared is a difficult question without an obvious answer. Maybe, as Overbeck suggests, Carroll was simply overshadowed by Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, who became comedy legends. And in a counterintuitive way, Carroll may have faded from memory because of the recent rise of women in comedy. The past decade especially has seen an explosion of incredibly talented and game-changing female comics. Amy Schumer, Tig Notaro, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Ellie Wong, Tiffany Haddish, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy. The list goes on and on and on. But maybe because stand-up comedy is now so suffused with successful women and more open than ever to female talent, it's all too easy to forget that Jean Carroll was one of the pioneers, up on stage in a beautiful dress and pearls, speaking her mind and paving the way. I mean, you can compare so many stand-ups from today to her style. Wendy Liebman reminds me a lot of her. Ellen DeGeneres is, is a lot like her with this classic way of just standing there with the mic and telling the jokes. And yet, she was a great ad-libber. She was nobody's fool. And, you know, she brought home a paycheck. (laughs) I mean, what woman did that? Now, we could end the episode right here. But to honor our subject, the marvelous Mrs. Carroll, I think it's only right that we let her have the last word. I took a cruise. Beautiful ship, the SS Seasick. (laughs) 
But my husband was getting dressed to go to dinner, and he noticed something green lying in my bunk. It was me. He said, oh, honey, it's all in your mind. Come on, you got to get out. You got to forget about yourself. They're showing a movie tonight. Let's go. It'll relax you. You'll enjoy. I went. Very relaxing movie. The Sinking of the Titanic. Well, I certainly have enjoyed my short visit with you, and I hope you have, too. Good night. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Shear.